And if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to read uh, over the passages that we've we spent so many weeks on, verses 19 through 25, and then I'll read through to verse 31. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Four. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The reason I read from verse 19 through, we're we're going to look specifically at verses 26 through uh, 31 this morning. The reason I wanted to read again, yet again, verses 19 through 25 is, I believe, the author gives us the antidote, as it were, the vaccine, to use a hot-button word right now. He prepares us, he arms us with what we need so that verses 26 through 31 don't happen in our case. That's why we spent so many weeks on it. So you need to have, you need to believe, you need to hold fast to the solution that God in his grace has given you in verses 19 through 25 or verses 26 through 31 will be too discouraging. I've known people to stumble on these verses. And don't fall for false solutions either. We're going to see in a a bit just how big of a problem this is, this falling away, this trampling underfoot the Son of God. And if we think that we can solve the problem with something other than what 
Christ himself, by the Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, gives us as the solution, then we're not going to fix anything. And the problem's just going to get worse and worse. So these are hard things and hard verses to hear. But Jesus gives them to us for our good because he loves you. Just know that I love you, and so I'm going to let the Bible speak. We're going to be reading a lot of Bible verses this morning. I don't want to offer the opportunity for any misunderstanding about what these verses say. So I'm just going to let the Bible speak. You don't have to turn there in every place. There's not a handout this morning because I want your full attention. This is so important. You don't have to turn with me to each reference. Just let me read it over you and listen. And so we begin again with the warning. Verse 26, for or because, that's how it is linked with the preceding verses. He gives us these three exhortations. Let us draw near with the full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider one another to stir one another up. Do those things for, because, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving The knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And yes, he is saying what you probably think he's saying. There's no confusion here. This isn't like the Melchizedek passages, right? What, what, what is, still lives? You know, who, who is Jesus? Who is Melchizedek? And in, in this whole analogy of the high priest, the order of Melchizedek, where did that come from? Like all these questions we had in chapters 7 and 8. This isn't like that. He's very clear. And so it's a good question to ask whenever you come across a text or a section of Scripture that just, just doesn't set well with you, to ask Why? Why is it that this passage that seems very clear, why, why am I having a problem with it? Because, let me just tell you a secret, it's you who needs to change. If you come across a passage of scripture that doesn't really sit well with you, you need to work in your heart or in your mind, misconceptions possible, but also your posture, your attitude towards the text needs to alter so that you can say yes, amen to every verse of scripture. And this sermon will, I hope, expose why this is so hard for us and so hard for many. And so much hangs on this phrase. If we go on sinning deliberately. So much hinges on what that means. So what does it mean? Literally, it could be something like this. It's just two words in the Greek. Sinning voluntarily. And don't confuse that with the idea of sinning of your own will. Because every time you sin, it is of your own will. Your your will is involved with every sin you fall into. If it's really sin, if it's a violation, then it's something that your will is in agreement with. You said yes to something, whether it is through weakness or, or misunderstanding. Whatever it was, you said yes at some point, and so you sinned. But the only other place in the New Testament that this word that is translated deliberately or that I gave you voluntarily is used in 1 Peter 5, 
verse 2, and I'll read kind of that section for you. It has nothing to do necessarily with this text, but it shows us how this word is to be understood. So, I exhort the elders among you, this is Peter speaking, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, and then here it is, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So, the flavor of this word is the idea of yes, something we're excited about, something that we're eager for. Maybe it's difficult to be a pastor, maybe, um, but it, it, it is something that you should be happy about and want to do, something that you want to offer yourself towards the flock and to be an example. It's not begrudging and not feeling a sense of obligation, like, yeah, I've got to do this. You wake up in the morning, but yes, this is what I want to do for the people I love and for the God I love. So it's the idea of joy in it, happiness in it, a deep yes, even though it may be difficult, that at the end of the day, at the very bottom of your heart, you say, I like this. I want to keep doing this. And so invert that, flip that completely regarding sin. If we go on sinning with that deep yes of the soul, that yeah, I know that there may be consequences and Jesus has told me not to, but I really want to do this. If we keep going on and on and on in that, then the author says, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And he uses these words, fear, judgment, fire, and fury. That is hell. The fire that will consume the adversaries. And some people create completely unbiblical doctrines to get around the clear implications of this verse and create something like purgatory. That, okay, this isn't talking about uh, hell. It's a, it's a time of punishment, maybe even millions of years, that you've got to go to to kind of pay off your sins before you can enter into heaven. Or... Not just Catholics in purgatory, but there are even some who would be considered evangelical who give this idea of easy believism. If you ever prayed, if you were ever sincere, regardless of how you lived your life afterwards, you can hate God the rest of your life, but you're still eventually going to go to heaven. There'll be some time of punishment where this will happen, but then you'll eventually be saved. Is that what the text is saying? Not at all. No, this text is not saying anything different than what the author has already said. So I'll recount some of the verses from chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, referring to the Old Testament, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while also God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. How shall we escape 
then from chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, Therefore, holy brothers, you, sh- you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. And with that said, he says in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and I'll try to read those quickly. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. This is God speaking. And said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who believed. For we who have believed enter that rest. As it is said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In chapter 4, verses 11 11 through 13, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And then perhaps most difficult of all, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those that have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Lord, the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And then most of the rest of chapter 6 through 10 Uh, The first part of 10, at least, talks about Jesus, this new great high priest over the whole household of God and this new covenant that he inaugurates and the new age that he has ushered in. So does that theology remove the concern for falling away? No, it intensifies it. 
There is no longer any sacrifice for sins if you fall away. And we're given this powerful, wonderful antidote to the problem in verses 19 through 25. And we're not done. There are more warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. He doesn't stop there. And also we should know that this warning is no different than a slew of warnings from Jesus himself. I think the perception is, or the danger is in Christianity, that, well, uh, let's not talk about wrath and sin and judgment and warnings. Let's just talk about Jesus. But if you take Jesus at his word, he talks more about hell and judgment than anyone else in the Bible. And I'm just going to give you a few of them, a small sampling of these warnings. From Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But I thought if I confessed with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, I would be all right. The point Jesus is making, the point that Paul makes in many other places, is you can say whatever you want with your mouth, but if your life doesn't line up with it, God's going to call you a liar. There is an inconsistency that can exist between what you say, what you confess, what you pray, and what you do. Matthew 24, 9 through 14 as well. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. For this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And from Luke 13, verses 22 through 30, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying, journeying, that's a difficult word, toward Jerusalem. And some said to him, Lord, listen to this question that some, some people come to Jesus and ask him this, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob... And all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. 
And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. That's Jesus. And so what eventually happens in our heart, if we're unwilling to let the Bible speak on its own terms, and we say, well, we'll we'll just take Jesus because he seems full of compassion, and he is, but we don't understand what that all means. Then we figure that we got to eliminate from Jesus' mouth a ton of what he says, and then we're left with a completely Christless Christianity. Where it's all good feelings and you're awesome and it doesn't matter. It's just grace, grace, grace. It doesn't matter what your life is like. Just say this, do this, and earn your way into the kingdom. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No, this does not mean, this verse, this warning does not mean a person can quote-unquote lose their salvation. First off, even asking the question that way is a problem. If someone were to ask, can you lose your salvation? I would say I disagree with the premise of your question. Okay? And you just have that in your back pocket. Not, not you kids, respect your mom and dad. But whenever you're forced into a corner by a bad question, you can just say, I disagree with the premise of your question. Because the premise of the question with asking, can you lose your salvation, it presents salvation as this tangible object outside of Christ. And the truth of the Bible is that all of the blessings of salvation and everything else are found alone in Christ. So if you reject Christ, then obviously salvation is no longer yours. That's the point. If you deny me, I will deny you to my Father. This is Jesus speaking. If you are in Christ, though, if He has you, you can't lose Him and He can't lose you. John 6, 35-40. I've read this several times when we had to cover, had to, got to cover the verses that I just read from Hebrews regarding falling away. I read this so many times and it was somewhat of an imposition on Hebrews. But I don't want to leave you without encouragement. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So in Hebrews, back to, back to the text that we're dealing with. I'll just read the warning again, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So this phrase, receiving a knowledge of the truth, does not equal the new birth. Okay, 
You need to have that in your minds. He is not talking about people who have become alive to God and really given a new heart and the new birth and the new covenant is sealed upon them by the work of the Holy Spirit. But, and I, want you to, I do want you to turn to this one with me. Mark chapter 4. I'm going to read almost the whole chapter because it's so important to understand these things. Beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. This isn't, kids, this isn't someone who sows with thread. This is sowing seed, right? If you didn't grow up on a farm, you might not know what that is. So people take seed and spread it across the ground, hoping that uh, vegetation and crops will grow. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. This is one of the only cases where Jesus tells exactly what the parable means. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those who are outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. So in this case, the seed represents the word of God, or the word of Christ, the gospel. It goes forth into the world. And those are the ones, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, so when they hear the gospel, they hear the word of Christ, they hear the truth about salvation, Satan immediately comes. So he's the raven that comes and eats the seed and takes away the word so that it, that is sown in them. And these are the ones who, the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They respond positively with joy to the word of Christ. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, when they begin to understand the cost of discipleship, when they begin to understand what you might lose, whether lose to the flesh or lose in your real life with jobs or relationships, They endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately 
they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. Lord, may we never be choked from receiving your word through our worries and anxieties. And it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. And you might say, a person might say, well, which of those are saved? If you receive the word with joy, but later fall away because of trials or tribulation or distractions or anxieties. The point of this passage is there's no fruit. And you will know them by their fruit. And as John the Baptist says, the axe is laid at the root of the tree even now. And any tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus isn't confusing his metaphors. So yes, this passage, this warning, back to Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27, does mean that many think they are safe and sound, but are in no way safe at all. And I understand how discouraging or hard that truth may be. But I want to read from uh, a research uh, project that's going on right now from Barna. I actually posted this yesterday if you want to read the whole thing. This is from this year. This hasn't yet factored in all that's changed with the pandemic. But they start with some definitions. Practicing Christians identify as Christian, agree strongly that faith is very important in their lives, and have attended church within the past month. So that's a pretty low bar. Yes, I say I'm a Christian. My faith is important to me, and I go to church maybe once a month. Non-practicing Christians are self-identified Christians who are not practicing. So they don't go to church. They say that their faith isn't really important to them. Non-Christians are U.S. adults who do not identify as Christian. So here's what they found with the research. The first and perhaps most significant change we'll explore is that practicing Christians are now much, a much smaller segment of the entire population. In the year 2000, 45% of all those sampled qualified as practicing Christians. That share has consistently declined over the past 19 years. Now just one in four Americans, 25%, is a practicing Christian. In essence, the share of practicing Christians has nearly dropped in half since 2000. Where did these practicing Christians grow? It is not just that the population is getting real big and there's the same number of Christians and so our percentage is just changing, right? If that just flew right over your head, it's okay, it's math. Okay, some of you are tracking with me, it's okay. So where did they all go? The data indicate that their shift was evenly split. Half of them fell away from consistent faith engagement, essentially becoming non-practicing Christians while the other half moved into the non-Christian segment. 
The shift, this shift also contributed to the growth of the atheistic agnostic non-segment, which was nearly doubled in size during the same amount of time. And that's before the pandemic. And it includes all Christians. Anyone who would just say generally, I'm a Christian. So Roman Catholic, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, they all say they're Christian. So you start cutting through and removing heretical groups and you realize just how small things have become. As I've been saying for now 14 years, people, the lights are going out. And you must shine as a city on a hill. You must put your candle on the stand, not under a bowl, and let it fill the house. Darkness can't overcome the light. But the lights are going out. And what happens, I think, in our minds is that we we know of a church or a movement or a group of churches that are doing really well. And because of the internet, we can make it feel like that's close and that's us and that's everywhere. But it's not. One big healthy megachurch in a massive state doesn't move the needle in the way that it needs to move. And we have many falling away. And maybe, and I think this is probably the case, it's just exposing that many were not genuine to begin with. But that shouldn't be an encouragement, right? When John says in 1 John, they went out from us, but they were not of us, because if they were of us, they would have remained with us. That isn't like, yay, we're good then, and that, that, just, that just means we're not doing a very good job of discipling. We've got a big, wide, open front door and we're not even looking at how many are falling off the waterfall behind us. So why do people decide to leave? I mean, we're just going to read more scripture, okay? I want you to see that this isn't just an isolated warning in a few places. This is everywhere and you can't escape it if you read your Bible faithfully. Go to John 6. John 6, beginning in verse 52, if you can imagine, there being 52 verses. There are actually 70. We'll read to the end. John 6, verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came. He's, he's probably pointing to himself. It's self-referential. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, as maybe many of you might say because of how Jesus is speaking, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples 
his disciples, okay? This isn't the Jewish leaders of the Pharisees. This is the group of 72 or the, the, the larger group. This is the 12 and them. When Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, with all that in mind, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, even to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The problem of human unbelief is that when God speaks true things, our hearts and minds recoil. And it is the same problem that happened in the garden where our first parents test the truthfulness of God's word. We don't believe what he says. It's not that Jesus is a weak savior and can't save those who come to him. He saves all those who come to him. But our hearts betray us. And they tell us lies. They tell us, yes, I can have Jesus and my sin too. You can't. Sin brings death. That's the reason we spent so long. This warning is why we spent so long in verses 19 through 25. I want you to be armed and encouraged by the way to shut that back door and to prevent those in this room from falling away. Who's it going to be? The statistics are 60% of those who grow up in church leave and most of them never come back. Who's it going to be? Are you okay with that? I'm not. From over a year ago, we were speaking on one of these apostasy passages and I compared it to uh, the fact that it's not, it's not like a sickness. I, I used tetanus because I couldn't think of any, any uh, massive illness out there that was super serious but super rare. Apostasy isn't like that. It's not like the coronavirus, right? It's not like a 1% fatality rate, right? Or mortality, whatever we're calling it now. 60% of those who grow up in church leave and almost never come back. If there were any sickness out there, like we, we have moved heaven and earth because of a pandemic that has a 1% mortality rate. And I'm telling you about something that is much more serious. Do not fear the one who can kill the body, but can no longer do anything to your soul afterwards. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. And we are losing droves of people and the lights are going out. Have you moved heaven and earth in your life to prevent this? 
This is the call for perseverance to the saints. I want you to make it home safely. I want to make it home safely. And then in verse 28, he gives us the first ground. And I know we're, we're going slower than you maybe like, but this is important. Verse 28, back in Hebrews 10. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So this is a proof by comparison. If this is what is deserved, dying without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses by someone who breaks the covenant that was mediated to us by angels, how much more serious a violation is it for those who forsake the covenant of God in Christ? And so he says, trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, and outraged the Spirit of grace. And you may read that and you say, well, my sin isn't that. It's just X, Y, or Z. It's not trampling underfoot Jesus. It's not profaning the blood of the covenant. It isn't outraging the Spirit of grace. I haven't done that. And the point is, by the ordering of these phrases... Going on sinning deliberately, whatever fills in the blank for you. If you're just, I, this is just me, this is, this is my sin, Jesus has died for me and I, I just received grace and I'm going to continue in this. It's not that important that I repent, regardless of what it is, then that is in fact trampling underfoot Jesus himself, profaning the blood of the covenant and outraging the spirit of grace. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. I have so many other passages of Scripture I want to read. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but this one I do want to read to you. 1 John 3, 4-10. through 10. There are so many biblical proofs of this same thing. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, meaning Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That's that same idea. Sinning deliberately, gleefully, blissfully. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. There's no in-between. In the biblical categories, there isn't those of the devil and then all those in the neutral category and then those who follow God. It's of the devil or of Christ. Sheep or goats. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever 
does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I want to encourage, okay? These are heavy warnings, and Jesus gives these to you for your good because he loves you. This is one of the ways that he's going to lose none of those that the Father has given him by giving you these warnings. But there is much encouragement. This is not talking about wrestling against sin. This is not talking about sinless perfection. James says in chapter 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. And if you've come to a point in your life where you view others as stumbling in many ways and you may be only stumbling in a very few number of ways, then you've, you've lost a biblical mindset. We all stumble in many ways. And then I do want you to turn with me to this passage, Hebrews 12, 1 through 8. Because we're going to get there eventually, and I want you to look forward to this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author here assumes that you will be struggling against sin. That shouldn't necessarily be an encouragement, but it at least gives a category that the fight against sin is evidence for salvation. Going on sinning deliberately, gleefully, happily, without respect to repentance, not being sorrowful over sin is what this is talking about. And then he gives us a second proof. For for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the character of God, the purity of his holiness, his namesake, the honor and reverence he has for his own name is the reason why we should take this warning seriously. Sin is the problem. It's not that Jesus is a weak Savior. Jesus saves sinners. Amen? That's not the problem. Your sin brought to Him is no problem for His salvation. Your sin held on to will cut you off from Christ. And the point is this. Sin is so horrible that only the death of the Son of God can redeem us from it. And if you're not in Him, if you're not chasing after Him, if you're not casting your sin upon Him, not turning from your sin towards Him, then He is not yours. And if you don't have the only person who can redeem you from sin, then you're obviously not going to be saved from the punishment that is rightly due to you.
Because it's all about him and his sufficiency. From Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is so much more excellent than theirs. This is the living God. And this is why the warning should carry weight, because the one we're talking about is this one, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. You don't want to trample him underfoot by your love of sin. This is why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Not just the God of the Old Testament, right? We can do that. Well, that was, that was before Jesus. Grace and truth came through Jesus. You know, so all that fear and wrath and warning and stuff, that was just back then. I hope that in reading the very words of Jesus, you see that there is no inconsistency there at all. And in fact, the warnings and the promise of retribution against the wicked actually gets ratcheted up. His majesty and glory is the reason for all three of these things. The reason we have strong encouragement to look to Him and not to ourselves is because He is glorious. He is majestic. He is sufficient in and of Himself. He is the one for whom this universe was created. And His his glory and majesty and dominion is the reason we have strong warning against falling away. Because it is this one that we would betray and trample underfoot by doing so. And His glory and majesty is the reason why gleeful sin and rejection of Him cuts cuts us off from all of His blessings. So, how should we then live? First... Be done with sin. Sinless perfectionism is never going to happen in your life. You will fight the war against sin your entire lives. But the invitation is to put it to death. You need to have a courtroom session in your mind and hand out the verdict of death penalty to your sins today. As Paul says... For the times that pass suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You've had enough time in your life for sin. However long your life has been, that's enough. Like parents, we say to our kids sometimes when we've reached the point of insanity. All right, that's enough, okay? You should view your life that way. That's enough of this insanity of running the other direction from Jesus. Of coddling the thing that caused him death. You cannot continue in it. What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It will kill you. The end of these things is death. If you hold on to, cling to your sin, when you should be holding on to, clinging to Christ... That leads to death. There is no other way to let the Bible speak. 
Be done with the things that made the death of Christ necessary. And if you don't have the will or heart to hate the things that killed your Messiah, then the Bible doesn't let you say that you love him. And because I love you, I need to let the warning just say, if that's you, if you cannot let go, if you are not making war against the things in your life that made the death of Christ necessary for you, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but rather a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In short, if you have no interest in abandoning sin, then Christ is of no benefit to you. No matter what prayers you may have prayed in the past, make war and put your sin to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Second, We must understand that the blessings of salvation and assurance are found in Christ alone. These are not blessings out here that Jesus doles out. They are both in Him and only in Him and forever in Him. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Salvation, sanctification, justification, redemption, assurance, whatever it is. It's all in Him. You don't get it doled out from Jesus. It's because you're united with Him through faith that you have any of those things. And then you have all of those things. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's not that He gives us wisdom or righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is Himself for us, righteousness, redemption and sanctification. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Colossians 3, 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. These are not things, assurance or salvation, that you can have outside of Christ. So it should be no surprise to us at all that if you abandon Christ through sin, trampling Him underfoot, that you then have none of the blessings that are always and only in Him. And lastly, behold Him. Don't look to yourself. Do not even let the enemy have the first word regarding your sin. Jesus saves sinners. That's kind of the point, right? That he went to the cross, died, took our sin upon himself, put it in the grave, destroyed it so that he could save sinners. So your sin, as long as you bring it to him and abandon it for him, then it's not a problem. It doesn't cut you off from Christ. It's only when you hold on to it instead of Him that it becomes a problem. Christ saves the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have I been sorry enough? Have I repented enough? The point is obviously no. 
You haven't. That's the point. That's the offer of grace. You're not going to clean it up in your heart enough to come to him. If you wait until you do, you never will. He is the Savior. Look to him. Don't navel gaze at your lack of maturity or holiness. Christ is a great Savior. There is more grace in him than sin in you. But there is a gulf of difference. Even the gulf that separates heaven from hell between being a great sinner who loves Christ enough to forsake as much sin as you possibly can each day versus being a very, very mild sinner who doesn't think that you're all that bad and sees no need to be done with these little respectable sins or big ones just as long as you don't hurt anyone. Or disappoint anyone. Trust, faith, whatever you want to call it, in the biblical sense, is casting yourself upon the mercies of Christ. Holding fast to Him. Not memory of spiritual experiences you may or may not have had in the past. It's the question of, do I cling to Christ? Am I holding fast to Him? In spite of my sins that I can't clean up myself, is He my hope and trust? Just as the old hymn says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Look to him. Christ is a great Savior And he can deal with your sins if you will cling to him. From Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy milk and wine without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Jesus is that good and rich food that came down from heaven. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that, you, that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You for whom the universe was made, we know it is for your glory. Help us see that sin is an empty cistern. It is a broken well. And the time that has passed is enough. Give us grace 
Help us not listen to the enemy who would accuse us all the more by pointing to our sin, but rather let us forget what lies behind and hold fast to Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.